Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. This is half an hour of science on your radio. And my name is Claire and this week on the show I am going to be talking about, well, one of my favourite subjects, birds. I hope everyone out there uh, voted in the Australian Bird of the Year. Um, But I'm going to be talking about some new research from Australian scientists that actually gives a bit of a back history of the ibis, you know, the much maligned ibis. Well, once upon a time, those animals were revered as gods <gasps> in ancient Egypt. So I'm going to take us back to ancient Egypt and um, the genetics research that Australian scientists are doing that give us some insights into our uh, cultural associations with ibis. Um, what have you got for us today? Well, I'm going to be talking about one of my favourite animals. And Claire, I see you're wearing a black and white striped top. I am. In honour of this animal, oh, I assume. In, in honour of you and and your favourite topic to talk about. Yeah. Well, we, we think it's my favourite topic to talk about. Um, so what we're talking about is why do zebras have stripes? Um, yeah, I believe it is something that I've talked about before, how we've looked through the archives of the show and can't find a record of when they might have done so. But um, So the question is, is, is my memory better than the computer's memory? I mean, my memory is obviously better than Chris's memory, but is it better than the computer memory? I think it must be. I think your memory is better than Google. <laughs> Listeners, if you've heard Chris talk about, about zebra stripes before, please let us know. Mm. Um, tell us which, which story was better. I regret to tell you that this will not be the last time because <laughs> now there's been some there's been quite a lot of research on this topic in recent years and including in this year as well. The, the question is still not resolved. It is a hotly researched topic of why zebras have stripes. I, look, I'm pleased to say that there's been a lot of work done, but we don't have the answer yet, so there will be stories in future, no doubt. <laughs> that is um, reassuring for me. And Stu has a story for us this week as well. Yes, Stu will be telling us about some experiments done in Germany where they have shown how to create the um, some of the precursors to life, the building blocks of DNA and RNA right. from yeah. like non-organic or non-living molecules. So how RNA and DNA might have come about. Yeah, in the primordial soup in the, in primordial the early soup early years of Earth. And they've recreated that. They have. They have shown how, uh, yeah, in the laboratory, how these things could have formed. Well, that is all coming up later on Lost in Science. On with the show. So, Chris, have you voted in the Guardian Bird of the Year campaign? Well, I voted in the first round and I voted for the Pied Karawong. Right, okay. And now it, there's like it's down to the top 10. I'm not sure yeah. what to pick. Yeah. I want to be political and choose like the black throated finch, or do I go with something like the, you know, the tawny frog mouth, which is always a favourite? Or Big favourite. Love favorite. the tawny frog mouth. Yeah. So, yeah, not sure. 
Yeah, yeah. And why is the black-throated finch a uh, political favourite? Oh, because it is threatened by the Adani mine in Queensland. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are some heavy-hitting birds in there as well, things like mm, the soft-crested mm. cockatoo, yep. um, your magpie. Oh, your magpie's always there. Yep, yep. Your, um, your wedgie. Oh, your, yep, yep. Yeah, your yeah. rainbow. Yep. Lorikeet, comma, rainbow. Yeah, yep. yep. Um, oh, and the superb fairy wen. And when, the, wren. And the superb fairy wren. A little show off. Yeah, a little show off. Yeah. Promiscuous show off. Mm. <laughs> anyway, amongst these national icons, uh, there's another bird. Uh, some may call it the ironic choice, but it almost cut through a couple of years ago, but it was pipped at the post by the magpie. I am, of course, talking none other than the bird of some Australians love to hate, the humble White ibis, or or as it is sometimes derogatorily called, the bin chicken. So it's fair to say the magpie swooped in. The magpie swooped in. Yeah, sure did. Yeah, look, as, I do. As, as they are wont to. <laughs> I do. I do like the the um the, the white the ibis. ibis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is a it is a wonderful bird. I mean, very few birds can cut such a fine figure while they're flying across the sky. I, yeah, I, I or find. picking through a bin. Or picking through. Anyway, I mean, yeah, look, it, it, it has copped a lot of flack. But I often think, you know, there's a lot of media attention that it has got. Sometimes, you know, there is no bad publicity, you know. It has raised its profile. It has, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the reason I'm talking about ibises today is for some other research that has been published, not just talking about the um, bin chickens. So remember last week, Chris, you were talking about the new study that uses DNA to tell a story about how humans evolved Mm -hmm. out of Africa. Well, today I have a story about ibises out of Africa. There you go. Or in in Africa. Yeah, yeah. More specifically, how researchers are using ancient DNA to get an insight into the cultural evolution of human and ibis relationships. Interesting. Yes. So, Chris, let's head to Africa or um, Egypt, to be exact. That's in Africa. Yeah, North North Africa. Yeah, yeah indeed. So, if you ever studied um, Egyptology or ancient Egypt in your youth, you might remember some of the gods of mm-hmm. ancient Egypt. Yes. Can you remember any of them? Well, uh, there was Horus with the the eagle head. It was yeah. a hawk head, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And there was... Um, Isis, of Isis, course. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the Anubis. jackal, Anubis with the jackal head. Yep, yep. It was Thoth, I think, was an ibis head. Yeah, that's right. Very good. It Thoth. Um, had the head of an ibis. And, um, yeah, in ancient Egyptian culture, Thoth was the god of wisdom. Mm. And also, Chris, yep. get this, yep. the god of science. Awesome. I know, right? You, Thoth. <laughs> so, obviously, the right god to be talking about on Lost in Science here. Uh, the reason Thoth was the god of wisdom and had the head of an ibis was because uh, the ibis, the sacred ibis over there, which is very similar to our white ibis, mm-hmm. was known for being a wise bird because it would only drink fresh water. So it was a wise bird, the bird of wisdom. Okay. It would only drink fresh water and um, out of garbage bins. <laughs> <laughs> Did other birds not drink fresh water? Look, <laughs> I cannot speak on behalf of the ancient Egyptians. Okay, okay. But uh, there we go. That's why um, Thoth took the uh, took the head of the ibis. Right. Yeah. So ibises are clearly iconic birds for ancient Egyptians, and yeah, the 
ibis over there is the sacred ibis. Looks very similar to our our ibis. Anyway, so every year it was thought to appease Thoth, the ibis-looking god, ibises would need to be sacrificed in very, very large numbers. Why did they think Thoth would like that? Uh, look, once again, I don't... You can't, you I can't speak, speak for the ancient speak Egyptians. For the ancient okay, Egyptians. Fine. fine. This was um, a ritualistic killing sacrifice mm. um, to Thoth. And, um, hard to hard, say. Hard name to say. Really hard name to say. Anyway, so, so new research just published in PLOS... Uh, one of the journals we know and love. It uses genetics to show how and where uh, ancient Egyptians got their hands on large numbers of ibises to oh. ritually sacrifice every year. So for many years, the story has been that these ibis were part of a um, an agricultural story. So they were farmed by... Um, in, on a large industrial scale by oh. ancient Egyptians. And then from that large farming practice, the sacrifices were made. Uh, but the researchers from Griffith University uh, found that this is probably incorrect. So the way that they figured this out was by comparing samples of modern-day sacred of modern-day sacred ibis um, and looking at the DNA, the ancient DNA of 14 sacred ibises from from back in the day, from burial sites all around Egypt. Do you have a time frame on that? So it was about um, 600 BC, so around two, two to 3,000 years ago. Okay. Yes. So these ancient burial sites are no small thing. Don't think it's like, you know, the number of ibises that flock to Hyde Park in Sydney or the Botanical Gardens in Melbourne. No, so every year in at each burial ground would see this the sacrifice of around 15,000 ibises. And um and then the number of burial sites around Egypt um was, you know, over over 100 hmm. um or or more. So they estimate um, every year, over one million ibises were, were being killed. So the researchers were looking for evidence that the ancient Egyptians farmed these ibises. Um, and in farm species, you typically find low genetic diversity mm-hmm. because, you know, birds interbreed and slowly over time genetic diversity is lost unless unless you get individuals from outside the population and you introduce new genes in into the flock. Uh, but after looking at the diversity of the ancient DNA and comparing it to the wild population of these sacred ibis, the researchers found that actually the genetic diversity was very high, suggesting that in fact these birds were not farmed at all, but they were harvested from um, from the wild every year, potentially as either eggs um, or as young, and then um, in communities all over all over ancient Egypt, they were reared up and um, and tamed, oh, wow. and then sacrificed at a certain time during the year. Okay, so they actually became part of the community. Right. Yeah. So there you have it. The god of the wise birds um, still has a thing or two to teach us. Yes, you're listening to Lost in Science. And once again, so we believe, we are talking about the hotly debated topic of why zebras have stripes. As they say, stripes are always in fashion, as are zebra stripe stories by you, Chris. Exactly, exactly. So, Claire, if you've heard one of these stories before, why do zebras have stripes? Well, there is one common belief that it is for camouflage purposes. There is another belief that it might be uh, something to do with the pressure 
of the heating and the cooling on the white and the black confuses the tsetse fly. Is that a thing? These are these are all these are all theories. You're quite right. There are a lot of theories about why zebras have stripes. You've touched on some of the main ones there. The camouflage doesn't seem to be the top of most people's list these days, even though it's the kind of thing that I think as kids you assume. And yeah. certainly as far as I've been able to find out looking into it, no one questions the idea that tigers, who have very similar stripes, that they're stripes are for camouflage. So, yeah, it's zebras is, is the one, though, that seems to have everyone questioning. People tend to think that lions, who are the main predators of zebras, have other ways of finding them. And certainly in studies of the species that lions hunt, um, zebras are overrepresented. Yeah, look, when I was in Tanzania, yep. every time I saw a lion eating, it was eating a stripy leg. Yeah, yeah. If they're doing for camouflage, it seems to be working. It doesn't well. seem to be working. <laughs> but yeah, protection from insects is another very popular one. Um, now, this is an interesting idea. Um, this is actually what – this is the reason I'm doing this story today because there's a recent story that caught my eye where um, some researchers in Japan were studying this. They were painting stripes on cows. <laughs> Um, for fun, no, no to do to, to find out whether whether having cows with zebra stripes reduced the number of insects biting them, and they claimed that they did. That there was a significantly fewer biting insects on the stripy cows than on the non-stripy cows. I don't know if you know this, but um, if you need a zebra in a film, you actually just paint a cow, and it looks like a zebra on film. Is this true? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of the popular theories of why this works is that it's something to do with like polarized light from the black stripes is broken up with non-polarized light from the white stripes, um, and that it affects, in particular, these um, the the tabanids, which are your horseflies, um, who use polarized light to to see. Oh right, so it isn't a temperature thing like I thought. We'll get to that. Okay. We'll get to that. All right. Um, the CC flies, however, don't use polarized light to see, so it doesn't kind of fit the CC fly thing. But there are yeah other ideas for how like the the stripes could affect fly vision as a kind of a camouflage thing. You know, that kind of makes it not clear where the outline of the animal is, so the fly mm. doesn't know where to land. Is oh, one of the ideas. Yeah. But like this study, it it was just I mean it's not hugely statistically powered. It was done on. <laughs> Cows in Japan, so um, it could be different to... What's wrong with cows in Japan? Well, comparing it to, say, zebras, or a different species in Africa, in completely Mm. different environmental conditions, with a different set of flies... Um, right. It's hard to say this is, this is a direct correlation. Um, so there was another study back in 2015 uh, that looked at the looked at the geographical distribution of zebras in Africa and looked at the stripes on zebras from different parts of Africa because zebras don't, aren't all the same throughout Africa. It tends to be like in the in the north, further they don't go all the way up, but in the in the northern areas, in the they have the thicker and starker black and white stripes. Uh, as you go further south, they get, the stripes get thinner and less contrast. Right. Um, and then right down kind of in South Africa, well, there, there was the extinct quagga, which was kind of yeah. only half striped. Yeah. So, yeah, there is a variation in striping across... The continent. Across the continent. And so what they did is they looked at the distribution of these zebra stripes and they compared it with the distribution of lions, CC flies and other environmental variables. Right, so they mapped it. And what they found that there was no correlation in the striping patterns with lion populations or with populations of CC flies. But there was some popular correlation with some temperature variables, especially the minimum temperature 
that it reached in those areas. So the theory then is that somehow this has something to do with temperature regulation. Right. Now, this is not a new, entirely new theory, and other people have studied this. As you suggested, there is some sort of temperature thing going on. The idea that the alternating black and white stripes cause some sort of air current air things. current movement. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but there have been, a lot of people have looked at this and there have been inconclusive results. People have tried doing things like uh, using thermal imaging cameras to try and measure the surface temperature of zebras and getting mixed results. <laughs> um, there was a study last year where they um, covered barrels with different kinds of hide um, to find out the, whether the core temperature inside the barrel, because they were water-filled barrels, whether that was affected by whether there were stripes or not. And they found they claimed that the stripes did not do anything. But those are barrels. Those are some, barrels. Those are barrels. They're not live zebras. So there was another paper published recently this year that has some new insights, had a slightly different approach. Uh, this was from amateur naturalist Alison Cobb and her zoologist husband Stephen Cobb, who have both been working in Africa for many years. And they studied live zebras in Kenya to try and find out what was going on. Uh, they observed three things that they noted in their paper. They noted that the, the black stripes did absorb more heat than the white stripes. They got about um, 15 degrees Celsius hotter, which they say could cause air movement, should cause air movement between the black and white areas. Um, they noted that uh, there's been a recent kind of observation, discoveries about uh, horse sweat, um, that like other horse species, zebras sweat perspiration contains this protein called latherin that makes it all kind of frothy. Foamy. Yeah, foamy. Mm. And this increases its surface area and helps it to evaporate more. Mm -hmm. So if there's more air air flow, that could help them cool down. Right. Um, And they also discovered that no one noticed before that the hairs on the black stripes stick up, whereas on the white stripes they don't. Really? Yeah. Wow. Does Does that happen all over the body? Yeah, it seems to. And they don't really know why. They had some ideas for what this might be doing, <clears throat> that it might be insulating them when, they're, when it's in the cooler, in the, in the cooler in the early morning, and that in the heat of the day, perhaps it's allowing air to get through and evaporate the sweat. But they didn't really... Is that a permanent physiological thing going on? Well, they just observed this in, in the zebras. I don't know if it's a permanent thing. They said the way they phrased it was the zebras have the ability to raise their, their black hairs, which kind of implies that they can do it kind of on command on command by yeah, concentrating right. yeah. but i don't know whether zebras have that that level of control over their hairs but um they haven't really conclusively proven that zebras are cooler as a result of all this but these are basically they're trying to identify mechanisms of what's going on and particularly i think the hair thing and the sweat thing is quite interesting because when you compare it to say the barrel experiment the barrels don't have sweat they don't have this hair raising mechanism so there could be something else going on that is not immediately obvious. Um, so, look, I think there is some there is some credence to this thermal theory, but it's also possible there is more than one thing going on here. As you said, like the if there is air currents caused by this difference in black and white, then that could also help stop flies landing on it. It's not a finished thing. It's an exciting field. There is so much still to learn. I am look. I look forward to many more stories. Look out for your zebra stripe updates. Um, yeah, coming to you in black and white. <laughs> Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection was published in his book, Origin of the Species, which celebrates its 160th anniversary of publication 
in November. Wow. Yeah, they grew up so fast. Wow. But when Darwin published his initially controversial hypothesis, part of the reason it was controversial is because he couldn't explain how plants and animals and fungi and microbes inherited characteristics from their ancestors. Well, they didn't know about DNA back then. Nobody knew anything about it. And almost 100 years after his book, the structure of the DNA molecule as a double helix was established by the work of Rosalind Franklin and published by Watson and Crick in 1953. But DNA was discovered well before that. A Swiss chemist called Friedrich Miescher in 1869, discovered DNA when he identified a number of substances found in the nucleus of living cells, which he called nucleins. And he stumbled on these nucleic acids while he was trying to isolate the proteins from white blood cells from used bandages. So he got a bunch of used bandages that were covered in blood and was trying to extract <laughs> proteins out of the white blood cells. That but then he went pretty, uh, pretty gross, but well, he ended you know, up doing a, what, a DNA extraction. Pretty much. Wow. So, yeah, 1869, he extracted some DNA but didn't really know what he was on. But he identified the chemical composition of these uh, what turned out to be nucleic acids, which included DNA and RNA. And he noted at the time, it seems probable to me that a whole family of such slightly varying phosphorus-containing substances will appear as a group of nucleons equivalent to proteins. So he basically identified that these were variable substances that were present in the nucleus of these cells, and he reckoned, oh, yeah, there's probably lots of these, and we're going to find out more about them. And he was absolutely right. So, so what is the difference between DNA and RNA? Can you explain? Yeah, so DNA is for storage of genetic information. And RNA copies that genetic information and turns it into proteins. Oh, okay. That's basically the difference. So when Friedrich Miescher discovered these things, he kind of went, these are probably really important. And so he wrote all these notes about them and recorded everything. Uh, But he couldn't figure out what the connection was and promptly was completely forgotten for about 50 years before anyone really looked at his work again and sort of went, oh, hang on, this guy was onto something, but he'd already passed away by that point. As I said, the DNA is the storage molecule. The RNA copies the information from DNA, turns it into proteins, which basically make all of the stuff in living cells happen. Um, So this process is fundamental to all living things and all organisms that we know of contain DNA and RNA. Though there are viruses that contain only RNA, they're not considered living things, so therefore doesn't count. So this connection by genetic inheritance is one of the reasons scientists assume that life arose only once on Earth and all living things are descended from a single ancestral lineage because we've all got the same processes that make things happen. How that lineage got started is still a big question in biology and some theories are around that uh, life arrived from somewhere else, landed on Earth, and it was already alive and somehow got kick-started that way. So it came from space? Yeah, the, the, the space seed theory. But that doesn't really explain how it began. It just means, well, it started somewhere else and got here. Well, still doesn't explain how it started wherever it came from. But another biological theory is that genetic material arose as a result of complex reactions between relatively simple chemicals. And there's a further theory that RNA appeared before DNA existed. So that there was an RNA world of all these complex RNA interactions going on before DNA even appeared. So RNA is sort of a copy, a version of DNA, and it could have altered over time by self-replication, incorporating errors or mutations 
into what became DNA later on. And then obviously from that point into increasingly complex organisms, which is what gave rise to everything. But RNA itself would need to have appeared out of simpler chemicals, all of which are abundant on Earth. And this would have required specific conditions, including the presence of water, which obviously we've got lots of on this planet. Now, a lot of scientists have dismissed this idea as too unlikely. It's, it's just not possible to get you know, the right chemicals in the right place for this to actually have happened. So there's four bases that make up RNA. There's adenine, uracil, cytosine, and guanine, which is A, U, C, and G. So what do you mean by a base? So they're just the little components that go up to make an RNA strand. So they're little strings of different combinations of these four bases. Yep. And the order of the bases has different properties, which allows them to put together proteins in different ways. Oh, so this is the genetic code that... Basically, it's yeah, okay. genetic code. Right. Yep. So these these bases are made from elements readily found on Earth, and they you know have potentially occurred in a hypothetical primordial soup. You've probably heard that name, primordial soup. It wasn't actually soup. It was just water and stuff floating in it. But I guess that's the definition of it's soup, soup, really. It's soup. Yeah. yeah. Um, Tasty, salty uh. soup. Delicious, full of, full of RNA bases in phosphorus. <laughs> no, but so this soup is, as I said, hypothetical, but some scientists at the Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich in Germany have succeeded in recreating such a primordial soup in the lab. Really? Yes, and they have successfully produced <gasps> the four required RNA bases Get in this out. soup. So this is what they did. They uh, replicated conditions that they thought might have been found in a tidal or seasonally wet and dry environment, which on Earth is a pretty common kind of environment, really. Um, What they did, they created a reaction which produced organic compounds under hot, wet conditions, and then they allowed that to dry out completely, and then they washed it with more water Mm. after it was dry, and one of the compounds was water soluble and it washed away and they collected that and then they put what was left in the original container through another reaction which formed another bunch of compounds and then they re-added the washed away stuff back into the original container and sounds like a lot of washing yeah or it's just basically water flowing over a surface yeah back and forth in different directions and the recombination created another set of chemical reactions which ultimately left them with all four RNA bases in their original container. So they basically wet it and dried it and sloshed it around and bingo, they all appeared there. So all it took, all it would take then is for something to join the bases together and you would have a strand. Now, whether, how that self-replicates is the next step that they have to figure out. How did it go from just being the building blocks of RNA to actually being RNA that could self-replicate? That's the next question they have to ask. But the initial conditions for it to appear, they've pretty much done it. And it could have happened, as I said, could have happened anywhere on Earth. But, yeah, this this idea of, of applying, you know, actual real conditions that we can still observe now to the same chemicals that would have been around, it's, it's, a, pretty good, uh, it's a pretty good evidence that this is possible. Whether it's how it actually happened or not is a completely different question. But um, at least they've demonstrated that the basic principle is pretty sound. So they can now maybe figure out how it went from just bases in 
the primordial soup into actually being organised into some sort of structure that allowed life to begin. That's all we have for you on another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded in the studios of 3CR and broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Drop us an email at lostinsight@gmail.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook. Or you can just tune in again next week when Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.